Hi, Stan. Um, can you hear me? Where is my, here it is. System preferences, so, oh, there you go. That's, not, that's much better. If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking with one of them in real life. Welcome to Back in America, the podcast. I am Stan Bertolo and this is Back in America. Today I'm speaking with Richard Henberg, a senior fellow at the Postcarbon Institute and one of the world's foremost advocates for shift away from our current reliance on fossil fuel. Richard has written for many publications, including Nature, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, The American Prospect, Public Policy Research, Quarterly Review, just to name a few. He's been quoted by Reuters, the Associated Press, and Time magazine. He has appeared on Good Morning America, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Al Jazeera, and C-SPAN. Leonardo DiCaprio called on Richard's expertise for his documentary, The Eleventh Hour. Richard, I wanted to speak with you today about a topic that's increasingly present in Europe and which is making its way into North America. That is the concept of our society's collapse, or l'effondrement, as it is now called in French. The idea is that the process by which basic needs such as water, food, shelter, clothing, energy, etc. are no longer provided at a reasonable cost to a majority of the population by services regulated by law. As Pablo Serving puts it, Collapse is both distant and close, slow and fast, gradual and brutal. It involves not only natural events, but also, and above all, political, economic and social shocks, as well as the events of a psychological nature. Collapse means that our fossil fuel-based civilization cannot sustain itself and it will fail. People that study how societies collapse believe that tomorrow is going to be very, very different from today, that no green energy and no technology are going to save our way of life. Not even the concept of degrowth will work since we can't force humanity into stopping production and consumption, especially in developing countries. So yes, they say, we are running into a war. But what's interesting is that the same person, those who are convinced that we will sooner or later collapse, are also full of hope. They say that we have to do everything we can today to smoothen this collision. We have to decelerate. We have to put on our seatbelt and prepare everyone for the shock. They are convinced that preparing for the world to come will give us hope as we work to create a better society, more collective and resilient. So Richard, this is why I wanted to speak with you today, not as a prophet of doom, but as a man of vision and hope. Welcome to Back in America. <laughs> Thank you, Stan. Good to be talking with you. So Richard, uh, Americans value optimism and have a go-to attitude. They are hard-working people, future-oriented and probably a bit more materialistic than European. 
Capitalism right. and free enterprise are sacred value here in this country. Chances are that for many Americans, the concept of social collapse is just unimaginable. That's right. Um, and, and in fact, it's very difficult for Americans to think of a world without economic growth. Um, and I don't think Americans are unique in, in that, but Uh, certainly in this country, we've had uh, many decades of uh, un uninterrupted growth, um, mostly uninterrupted. I mean, the, the, what we think of as, as recessions and, and even, well, the Great Depression was the biggest interruption we've seen in the last, um, in the last century. Um, and what, what we did in response to the Great Depression was to create an, a new economic system called consumerism, mm -hmm. which is based on uh, ever-increasing rates of extracting raw materials, manufacturing products, distributing and selling those products, and then uh, ultimately turning them into waste. Um, and the idea is that all Americans are not Um, citizens or people, we're consumers. And that's, that's our most important role in life because the more we consume, the more we keep the economy uh, growing and going. Uh, and if we do that, then there will be jobs for everyone. Um, uh, investors will make profits. Uh, tax revenues for government will go up. And so the government will be able to provide more services Of course, the whole thing is based on the idea that this can go, go on forever. We can continue growing the economy um, in perpetuity, which, of course, is, is absurd if you know any math at all. The, the, uh, you run into the problem of, of the exponential function. Um, I want to come back to that in a minute. Yeah. <clears throat> And in fact, I was going to um, quote Arthur Keller, who is a specialist of uh, systemic vulnerability uh, in France. His view is that there are basically four types of vision of the future. The first one is the limitless, people that believe that business as usual uh, will go on and that there is no major issue with the biocapacity to scale. Then the, you've got the people that believe that we can actually find a way to sustain our way of life with green energy and, and all those stuff. Others are the degrowth, people that understand that the planet has limit. And we'll recommend uh, stopping growth. And then finally, the collapsist. And he argued that the collapsist are people that believe that our civilization will somehow collapse uh, are the ones that are in the right. W what do you think of those four visions? I, I would like to think of myself as being in the degrowth camp as, uh, you know, if there are some, if there is some way that we can shrink the whole human economic enterprise to a size where it's no longer uh, undermining the viability of the earth's ecosystems, then, you know, we could have some, some sort of planned and um, survivable uh, process of adaptation rather than having to face a, a collapse. Uh, realistically, I think collapse is the most likely Uh, outcome just because no one in a position of power and authority is interested in degrowth. I mean, that's it's discussed a little bit in in Europe, as you mentioned, but uh, 
there's no one in Washington, D.C. who's recommending degrowth or, or even talking about it. No, no U.S. presidential candidate uh, has mentioned the word, and I will be extremely surprised if, if anyone does uh, before the actual election. So that that being the case, then, uh, you know, our plan seems to be to keep the accelerator smashed against the floorboard until we hit the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's collapse. Now, as you said, collapse can come in many forms uh, um, as a as a uh, sort of secondary uh, strategy. I think it's it's also important to explore ways in which collapse can be managed or um, reduced in severity uh, to whatever extent it can. And I've I've actually been part of uh, a couple of networks of, of scholars and scientists who who are discussing whether there are ways of doing that. And I have to say the discussion hasn't uh, hasn't gotten very far because uh, without some sort of buy-in from people with the authority to actually do something, then it's all sort of wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah. And and I want to come back to what you do um, on that front, but. Uh, You know, I've heard a lot of people say that we need to stop the catastrophic discourse. They say that the future remains open and that uh, the heuristic of fear is no longer relevant. Actually, it provokes hostile reaction and it's pretty counterproductive. What would you say to that? Well, I think for many people, that's true. Uh, Many people are psychologically ill-equipped to discuss collapse. It's just too too formidable a possibility to to contemplate, and we're seeing that right now with the worldwide coronavirus epidemic. Uh, I've had many conversations with uh, friends and family and so on, where you know uh, people are just unwilling to contemplate the possibility that you know we may have to quarantine whole cities uh, that the kind of economic downturn that China has experienced as a result of de-networking its economy may occur throughout, uh, you know, Europe and and North America. And, you know, so if, if people are psychologically fragile, having difficulty just keeping up with uh, the challenges they already have in their lives, then the discussion of collapse is, it's not really very helpful. <laughs> it just provokes resistance. Let's go back to uh, the topic of um, preparation for what is called a, a collapse. Uh, I've read that you advocate community resilience. Yes. What does it mean? <laughs> well, resilience is um, kind of the opposite of uh, what we've been aiming for in the global economy for the last few decades. We've been aiming for economic efficiency, which means doing away with redundancy, reducing the size of inventories, and also lengthening supply chains so that we can access the cheapest labor and the cheapest raw materials wherever they are on the planet. So that's given us uh, cheaper products, and it has helped to uh, grow the Chinese economy very rapidly and, and to you know massive level. But economic efficiency comes at the expense of resilience, because at the end of the day, after you've pursued globalization and economic efficiency for 
for decades, what you end up with, with is a very brittle, uh, super networked global economy, which is what we have now. So, you know, uh, China unplugs its economy from the rest of the world in order to fight this virus. And what happens? Well, China's demand for oil goes down. Therefore, um, OPEC has a meeting uh, so that the Saudis can try to persuade everyone to produce less oil so that the oil price doesn't crash. Russia uh, doesn't go along with that. The oil price craters. And who does it hurt? It hurts American fracking uh, companies who are producing uh, tide oil from shale. So, you know, one thing happens on one side of the globe and somebody on the other side of the globe feels it. Um, this We're so networked at this point that it's, uh, it's even making it difficult for us to fight the virus in the, in the most, uh, you know, practical ways. Here in the United States, we don't have enough face masks. Mm-hmm. So the authorities are telling us, you don't need a face mask. Fa- face masks don't work. The reason they're telling us that is not because face masks don't work. It's because there aren't enough of them. And they want to avoid a panic and keep the face masks that there are available for the healthcare workers, which is perfectly rational. But how do we get into this situation? Well, the face masks are made in China. China is not shipping us any. And we didn't have big enough inventories. So, you know, this is where we are. The solution to all of that is to build more resilient, localized economies with more uh, redundancy, more inventories, uh, shorter supply chains. This is something we've been advocating at uh, Post Carbon Institute for 15 years now. And um, unfortunately, you know, the folks in charge have not <laughs> been listening to our little voice on the internet. Uh, no surprise there, but but we see the results of it in what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Talking about the oil uh, crash uh, that we are seeing today, do you think that the risk is that a sudden stop in consumption could lead to the inability to make uh, the investment profitable and therefore to store the production share definitively? Yeah, I think the uh, the, sh- the shale producers uh, in the U.S. are going to be chased out of the market pretty quickly. Uh, a few, the big companies like Exxon and Chevron may be able to stay in the game for a while, but they're even they're going to be forced to pull back on on their investments. And you know, there are dozens of companies that that produce in the in the shale sector, and. Um, almost none of them have been profitable. Uh, almost none of them have generated, um, uh, you know, working uh, money above what they've been able to attract from investors and, and to borrow. So it, it just doesn't look good. The same thing with the tar sands in Canada or the oil sands, uh, very expensive oil to produce. And uh, they've already been cutting back on expansion plans. And I think uh, this is going to Uh, force even more cutbacks. So, you know, I'm very hesitant to say, well, this is the peak of world oil production, because I've been talking about that for the last 20 years. And uh, I'm I'm afraid I've made a a couple of wrong calls in that regard. Uh, So I'm very hesitant to say it now. But uh, (laughs) on the other hand, it's 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 it is looking kind of peakish around here. Okay. 
So we could be on the brink of a, of a major crisis uh, as big as uh, 2008? Oh, yes, definitely. It, and it could, in fact, be much worse this time, just because in 2008, I think the, uh, the central banks and the governments had more of uh, an ability to uh, stimulate the economy. They've already used those tools. Interest rates are already very low. And then in the coronavirus situation, what does stimulus actually accomplish? Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got you know, millions of people who are staying home and not participating in the economy, is giving them a little more money going to change their their consumption decisions? Are they suddenly going to decide to go on a, a plane trip to Italy uh, and see some art, you know, because they they feel a little little more flush in their bank account? Of course not. Um, so it's the the ability of the of the government and uh, central bank authorities to to deal with this is quite limited this time. So I think it it could in fact be worse than in two thousand eight. But who knows? We have we're still at the very beginning of this, so it's 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 too early to to make absolute pronouncements like that. Right. So going back to the community, you know, I understand that having a more resilient community uh, makes sense. However, the the way you describe it was really on an economical level where mm-hmm. you would be calling for business to be more local, uh, stop, you know, the, the globalization process that we know today. However, if we look at the other aspect of the picture, which is the, the, the oil peak, which is the fossil fuel economy, etc., that won't change much, right? If your enterprise can't, function because you don't have any oil, whether it's local or distant, it still can't work, right? So, you know, what are other aspects of um, resilient community that you're advocating? Well, um, resilient communities are uh, going to be ones that find ways to solve basic human problems using less energy and less materials. That's Will, that will be the case whether we plan for it or it's it's forced upon us. The the communities that that do that will succeed better than the than the ones that insist on, uh, you know, trying to maintain business as usual as long as they possibly can. Um, another aspect of community resilience really has to do with uh, psychology and group psychology. How much are the people in the community? thinking together, working together, meeting together, trusting one another. That's the really the most important thing. To what degree do, do the members of the community mm-hmm. interact with each other in, a, in, in an attitude of trust and cooperation? Um, and in that regard, there, there, are, there are some worries. Uh, we've seen increasing political polarization here in the United States and in other countries. And that's that's tearing apart that fabric of trust that's that's really important in order to weather periods of, of retrenchment and collapse. Uh, the other thing is uh, the coronavirus itself. Uh, people's response to it, of course, is to pull back from social interaction. Social distancing is the phrase that we're hearing. That's That's necessary as a response to the uh, the pandemic. But of course, it uh, it keeps people from interacting with one another in churches, at uh, arts events, 
in uh, community celebrations of all kinds, uh, political events, you name it. And right. all of these are really the fabric of the community. So the, the over, over the short term, over the next few months, the, uh, the, the pandemic is going to be ter- tearing and ripping at that fabric in ways that are, that, are, that are not good for building community resilience. So I think it's really important that we find ways, whether it's through you know, um, computer networking and social media or, or whatever, to maintain those, those ties as much as possible and support you know, local arts and uh, community events in it maybe in new ways, find new ways of, of doing that. But, but if we just retreat into our little uh, safe zones, then I think um, it's, it's going to be very hard to rebuild those, right. those institutions and those bonds of trust. So what I was wondering, uh, reading about community resilience uh, and trying to imagine in my head what it would look like, mm. um, I could see a scenario where you would have communities very well prepared uh, with permaculture, with the tight yes. bonds among people, etc. And you would have communities which are not prepared at all, people coming from big cities who did not anticipate that change. And you could easily see how the two communities or the two kind of people, the prepared and the unprepared, would come together and in a probably in a violent way yes yeah that's that's entirely possible and there there are no um there are no ways of guaranteeing an easy and peaceful transition uh into our future but uh for those who are who are prepping i think it's you know it's important to to game out those kinds of situations and say, well, what's the best way to ensure our well-being and survival if other people aren't uh, taking those kinds of uh, preparatory measures? Well, one way is to um, make yourself a, a useful part of the community, a respected and useful and trusted part of the community so that People will will listen to you when you when you say, "Well, we should be preparing," and so that people will come to your defense or rally around you when the when going gets tough. So that that goes against the prepper mindset of a lot of folks who who say, "Well, it's just you know a matter of stockpiling guns and ammunition and, and canned food." I, I don't really see much success at the end of that. Uh, strategy because um, sooner or later somebody else with with a bigger gun is going to come along and and uh, it just does not go well. Yeah, in the U.S. we saw a lot of that during the Cold War, right, where you were building a bunker in your in your backyard and indeed you know having militia and and uh, trying to be a, a survivalist. So that's not what you advocate. No, I mean it's there's much more of that going on today than there was during the Cold War, actually. Really? Really? Yeah, it's and it uh, it's uh, it's more underground now. Uh, I, I don't mean in bunkers, but I mean in terms of public uh, public awareness. But the the prepper movement is very active in the United States, and there are a lot of folks who have you know hundred pound bags of rice stashed away, and 
along with rifles and shotguns and ammunition and so on. Wow. Do you have any numbers, any, any stats on that? Well, I, I, no, I don't have, I don't think it's uh, easy to collect such numbers, but I'm sure it's in, in it's in the, the range of low hundreds of thousands. Okay. All right. Wow. Let's uh, move on, if you if you will, to uh, a question that comes back often, which is, you know, in our current business as usual scenario, what do you think would happen to the world growing population in a planet that has limited carrying capacity? And is there a consensus on that carrying capacity? No, there is no consensus on a long-term carrying capacity. And uh, uh, various scholars have tried to, Im- you know, imagine what's, you know, what is the long-term carrying capacity of the planet without fossil fuels, let's say. And the estimates range all the way from, you know, fewer than a billion up to, you know, a larger number than we currently have. But it's, you have to look at the assumptions that are associated with those kinds of calculations. Uh, I think it's, uh, the, the number is certainly lower than our current global population, probably significantly lower. And so what will get us from our current population to, to that number is likely to be a, you know, a series of ongoing events. I, it's unlikely to be a, you know, a single uh, catastrophic event unless it were a nuclear war. That's, that's one thing that could result in that. Um, uh, a series of pandemics uh, would, would probably be more gradual. Certainly the coronavirus is not going to do it. Uh, even if it's as lethal as the 1918 flu uh, and 50 or 70 percent of, of the people in the world are infected with it, uh, in that scenario, several tens of millions of people may die from this thing. That's that's a worst case scenario. But we're adding 80 million people a year on a net basis still uh, from population growth. So uh, it, it's like World War II that killed 60 million people. But uh, it, in terms of world population growth, it, it just, you know, created a little notch in the graph. But it, uh, we kept on going. So unless we encounter, you know, much worse pandemics than, than this one, I think it's uh, the the engine of, of population reduction is probably more likely to be driven by by starvation and violence, which is not a, not a fun conclusion to come to, but that's so, uh, that's what it looks like. And what do you say to people that say, oh, the earth has enough resource to feed everybody, it's just a matter of distribution? Right. Well, we, we do currently uh, because we're we're drawing down the long-term carrying capacity so that we can use it over the short term. We're destroying topsoil through erosion and salinization. Um, we're poisoning the environment with pesticides and herbicides and, and artificial fertilizers in order to produce the, the, the crop yields that we're currently producing. So yes, our current crop yields are enough to feed everyone if they were properly distributed. But um, can we continue mining the world's topsoil at current rates and so on? No, we can't. And 
of course, you know, theoretically, somebody's always going to come up with a back of the envelope idea. Well, if we just uh, grow all our food in test tubes, the you know, it would. It's not going to happen. That's uh, our. <laughs> we can we can do that on a small scale, just like we can produce uh, biofuels on a small mm-hmm. scale to run our cars or or even a few airplanes. But uh, we're not going to transition whole industries or or the whole food system uh, in in a manner like that because it's it's just too big. I'm just pausing because this is a lot to take in, right? Uh-huh. You were, I don't know if you still are, but you were an ardent proponent of sustainable low-carbon energy. Yes. What is your take on biofuel? And I think you just mentioned that. And uh, what can listeners practically do to switch to a greener provider? Is that even possible? Well, yeah, it is possible up to a certain extent. Biofuels... um, require a lot of energy for their production. And and if we were going to grow biofuels or produce biofuels on a large enough scale to really make a difference, that would require uh, basically growing a lot more crops specifically for fuel and, uh, and you know, burning more of the biosphere. Here in North America, now that's, it's, it's different in other parts of the world, but here in North America, uh, we are <clears throat> using as much energy as all of green nature absorbs from sunlight on an annual basis. So, you know, biofuels, <laughs> we would have to basically be burning all of, of nature's productivity every year rather than growing food and allowing some some of nature to continue to support wildlife and, and so on. There's no future in that. Uh, and, and by, as I mentioned, biofuel production is very energy intensive. So if you look at the energy required versus the energy that you're, you're getting out at the, at the end of the process of making the ethanol or the biodiesel, uh, in most cases, it's an energy sink rather than an energy source. So, Biofuels really are really not a good answer. If we are going to make an energy transition away from fossil fuels to some other kind of industrial energy system, it's almost certainly going to be based on electricity, or at least parts of it will be based on electricity. So uh, electrifying transportation really does make sense. But can everybody have an electric car in the future? I think it's probably very unlikely. The, the battery materials, lithium and so on, are, are limited. So reducing your need for transportation is very important. Uh, an electric bike can be a, a good solution. Public transportation, electrified public transportation. Um, and these same kinds of solutions apply in, in all other fields, whether it's home heating or the food system. You know, find ways of of solving problems and meeting needs using less energy, doing it more locally. And where you use energy, um, see if you can uh, access it uh, through electricity and and use renewable sources to produce the electricity if possible. Is it going to uh, keep us from collapsing? 
Probably not. <laughs> but, you know, collapse, collapse is, a, is a relative term. When societies collapse, that means they get smaller, sometimes in, in temporarily chaotic ways, but they reorganize themselves. Chances are the collapse of modern industrial society will not be universally fatal. Uh, there will be survivors, and those survivors will um, have the opportunity and, and the necessity of redesigning systems. And if we already are thinking along the lines of what sort of systems could uh, could support us long term, then the, the people who do survive will benefit greatly from from our, our thoughts and efforts along those lines. Good, good. Uh I've got three questions to go, and one of them is, so last year, 2018 and 2019, we saw the rise of the youth climate marshes, right? Strike, strike for climate. Today, what we see is that a lot of those kids feel that they haven't been heard, and they are sort of being, you know, looking for alternative and, and how to carry on with their movement. What would be your advice to them and maybe to their parents? Right. Um, well, that's that's difficult because the, those decisions, you know, the, those young people have to make the decisions for themselves. I mean, I'm sure they're they're not all that interested in having more advice from uh, an elderly white man. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they get that all the time. So, you know, I, I can hopefully I can provide some infor information and perspective. But in terms of what to do with it, you know, young people, uh, they they have uh, a, a lot of time in front of them uh, to experiment and to adapt. And uh, and they're going to have be having to make those decisions for themselves. OK, fair enough. Um So, I mean, you know what? I don't know if you know Pablo Serving in France, but he said that Ian is one of the voice behind l'effondrement or the collapse. And he said that up to the the moment when he realized that we were actually going to collapse, he was growing extremely depressed because he mm -hmm. couldn't find a way out of it. And the day that he realized that collapse was the only issue to our situation, he started to become more optimistic because he could see, <laughs> just as you said, that we've got something to strive for, building a better society, working locally, doing you know everything that you advise. Uh, what is your own personal experience with that? I, I, I think it's similar. I mean, um, uh, I, I used to... Uh, teach at a small uh, private college, and uh, it was a year-long program through which I took students. Um, it was called Culture Ecology and Sustainable Community, and we looked at all of the vulnerabilities of modern industrial society and how unsustainable it is. And for the first couple of months, the students were always depressed. I mean, they, it, it was always, well, I, I knew it was bad, but I had no idea Can't we talk about something else? You know, <laughs> and then um, usually around halfway through the you know the, the year long program, it the the realization settled in that yeah we're we're in for it, 
And what am I going to spend my life doing? Um, am I, how about investigating and, and building alternative systems now? Uh, it's, that's going to be a lot more uh, interesting and productive and life affirming than just, you know, sitting in front of my computer and, and, and watching as things come apart and fretting over it and, and so on. And, uh, and so, you know, every student did a, some kind of um, year long project that they devoted themselves to that was, whether it was permaculture related or most of them were, but, um, and by the end of the, of, of the whole experience, you know, it was like, wow, everyone was reoriented and had a, uh, a new way of looking at the world and, and some way of dealing with the information and, and making a difference. So, yeah, I've, I've had a similar experience to that. It's, it's happened over maybe a longer period of time, maybe the last 20 or 30 years, but, uh, uh, that seems to be the natural tra trajectory. Right. What do people usually don't understand about what you do? It's all pretty much common sense when you when you are dispassionately looking at the the facts. But uh, we're we human beings are not motivated just by facts. We're motivated by uh you know emotional tendencies and preferences and and uh are already uh our investments emotional investments and many people i think are very much emotionally in invested in business as usual and keeping things going the way they are at any cost and And therefore, even to imagine that it's possible that the world is, is fundamentally unsustainable and on a track toward, it's just not. So they'll go to any length to, to uh, rationalize and justify excluding the facts or uh, ignoring them. And so that's, that's what I see happening. Okay. All right. And finally, a question which I always ask in uh, back in America is, what is America to you? <laughs> um, that's, gee, that's a big question. Um, you know, it's, it's many things. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it, it's a geographic place. It's a set of interconnected ecosystems. It's a lot of people who have different histories and have come from different places and tried to uh, adopt some kind of collective cultural and political uh, agreements so that there's some, some kind of cohesion. America is an economic system. It's a, it's a, a political economic system that has found ways of dominating much of the rest of the world over the last century or so. Uh, it's a colonial system. It's a, you know, it, America is, it, it's, it, it is an ideal of freedom, but it's also uh, a perpetrator of genocide and, and slavery. It's many things. Uh, it's, it's, it's complicated. And, <laughs> and I, I don't always feel comfortable being here, but, uh, 
for better or worse, this is this is where we are. Okay, good. And the last question is, do you have any books or movie uh, you would like everybody to read or watch? Oh, gee. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Um, David Fleming was an author who just passed away a few years ago, um, unfortunately. But he he did leave us some uh, terrific book, a couple of terrific books, one of which is uh, called Lean Logic. Uh, and another is called Surviving the Future. Actually, Surviving the Future is the one, one I would recommend. Terrific book. Uh, and written in a lighthearted spirit, but with very, you know, eyes very wide open. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Well, thank you, Thanks Stan. for your time. Bye-bye. Uh -huh. Bye. Take care.